0: All right. well welcome back. We are continuing on in our study through the Gospel of John. We are still in John chapter 1, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up there. I really encourage you, if you're in a position where you can do so, to uh, have your Bibles open. Especially today, because we're going to be uh, jumping around to a bunch of different scriptures. So it's important that you track along with us here on this study. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about um, some scriptures on baptism and such. And uh, um, just really, really encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. If, Like I said, if you're in a position where you can do so. So anyway, um, last time we left off in verses 23 through 27 where John was declaring who he was and why he came to a group of priests and Levites. And these priests and Levites were sent to John by the Pharisees. And um, why don't we just go ahead and read verses 23 through 27 again here, because there's uh, a couple of different points I want to make here. Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Now, one of the things that I wanted to just go back and look at those verses again for, I wanted to point out that uh, phrase there that John uses when he says, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. That is an expression that was used by the rabbis of that day uh, when they would speak to their students. Um, In that teacher-student relationship, the rabbis didn't always treat the students in a respectable way. And they would often ask for unreasonable services from their disciples. One of the things which was considered very unreasonable was for a rabbi to expect his disciple to undo his sandal strap. That was... uh, something that was uh, just seen as very disrespectful and very unreasonable thing to ask of someone else. But John is saying here in verse 27 that he's unworthy to even do this to Jesus. So John was declaring to these priests and Levites just how great Jesus is. And, you know, for the past couple of weeks, we've talked about the deity of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, of course, he's the greatest teacher that has ever walked the earth. Uh, He's God in the flesh. He is also the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, as we'll see as we go on here in this study today. But uh, let's go ahead and just pick up in our study for today now in, in verse 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, John was baptizing, and that is, of course, the reason he was called John the Baptist. But the Jews in John's day, they also performed baptism. To them, though, it was uh, it was something they did as a ceremonial washing, and they often um, reserved baptism for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So, in order for a Jew to submit to John's baptism a Jew was kind of identifying themselves with the Gentiles. They were really humbling themselves um, in their own eyes anyway. So so when a Jew was baptized by John, this was a big deal. And it was a genuine sign of repentance. And for us today, that is what baptism is as well. It's an outward expression of the commitment of our heart. We have repented And now we go and we get baptized and we make that outward expression of that inward commitment. We've come to that place of true repentance. We've realized our wretchedness and we've come to understand our need for a Savior. And uh, we turn to the Lord and then we go and we're baptized. Now, I want to kind of look at some different scriptures now. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6 because we're going to touch a little bit on sin, we're going to touch a little bit on baptism and repentance here as we go through this, so like I said, you'll really need to track with us, Romans chapter 6, and um, we're going to go ahead and start reading in verse 1, Now, kind of expound on some of these scriptures as we go. Uh, so hopefully you're there, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, so now that you've been saved by grace, is it okay to go on sinning? Verse 2 says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Okay, so here it says that we've died to sin. But how is it that we are dead to sin? What does that mean? Is it something where um, it has now become impossible for us to sin? We know that's not the case. We have the ability to sin. So then, what is it that makes us dead to sin? What takes place that causes this to happen? Okay. Now, like I said, we're going to be jumping around. So I want you to turn now to Hebrews chapter 9. All of this is going to... Tie together when we come to an end here, but Hebrews is in the back of your Bible. Uh, You'll find Philemon, and then Hebrews, and then James. So if you get to 1 Peter or 2 Peter, you've gone too far. Back up, and uh, right before the book of James, you'll find the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at chapter 9. And if you remember, last time we talked a little bit about the law. And how the law did not have the power to keep people from sinning. And when we talk about the law, we're talking about all the do's and the don'ts that we find written in some of the Old Testament books. God, through Moses, delivered the law to the children of Israel. And it wasn't very long before they started breaking the laws. If you remember last time uh, on our last, last time we were together, we saw in uh, John chapter one, verse 17 that it says, "For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ." And today, as followers of Jesus, we are not under the law, but many people today still have traditions and rituals that they follow that they believe makes them holy in some way, shape, or form. And as we study through the Gospel of John, we'll continue to see that Jesus and His disciples were constantly being antagonized by the religious folk of that day. But here, in Hebrews chapter 9, we'll get a little insight into what was required of the Jews as a part of their religious service. God had given to Moses the instructions on how to set up the temple, And the Jews carried that on for generations and generations to come. Um, But let's go ahead and and read through uh, some of this. And keep in mind the question that I posed earlier. How is it that we are dead to sin? Verse 1. Then indeed, okay, so now this is, we're, we're, we're talking about what was set up Uh, In the law, okay? Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. In other words, what's being said here is there was work that needed to be done. Um, The first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant and above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Okay, so, why did all of this exist? What was the reason that God had the Jewish people do all of this. These um, these ordinances of divine service of the earthly sanctuary and all the things we just read about there. Well, look at verse 9. It tells us here that it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience, concerned only with foods And drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. So you see, all of these rituals were just outward things. And they could not do anything about the conscience or the sin within. And today there are still many people that um, practice religion or uh, ordinances of divine service thinking that these things are making them holy in some way. But this tells us here that all of that was just symbolic because it could, none of that could do anything about the conscience, the sin within. Now verse 11, though, goes on to say, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So, you see, when Jesus came, that put an end to all of the religious rituals all of the ordinances of divine service that needed to be done. Nothing we do or nothing that we do not do makes us holy today. The only way to be internally clean in the sight of God is by the blood of Jesus Christ. God gave the law and it was good. God honored the sacrifices that they made, but the sacrifices couldn't do anything for the conscience or the inward sin. Let's read on. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit Offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, how is it then that we are dead to sin? What actually takes place when we come to Jesus? Well, we repent. We surrender our entire being to Jesus. His blood, as it says there in verse 14, cleanses our conscience and we begin to walk in a new life. We are born again. Okay? Do you see that? Do you follow that? So then, now let's turn back to Romans chapter 6. We we see in verse 2 there, Romans chapter 6, that we have died to sin and should no longer walk in it. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So we're dead to sin. Because when we were baptized into Christ, we're we're dead to sin now. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. So, when we're baptized, we go under the water, which symbolizes that just as Jesus was buried and dead, we are dying to our old flesh-led life. We then come up out of the water, which symbolizes that we are rising again, like Jesus did, to a new and an eternal life. And from that point on, we are to walk in that new life. We believe that we also, or excuse me, we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a lot of power in that; those scriptures right there. So if you need to take time and go back and read through those again slowly, I really encourage you to do it, okay? Now I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Okay? So we're talking about baptism here and how it symbolizes that we're dead to the old nature, how we're rising again to a new life. We have Christ in us and we're no longer to live according to this flesh, uh, our fleshly desires and such. We are now to live according to the Spirit, which is within us. But back in 1 Peter chapter 3, and you'll find 1 Peter right after the book of James. So you'll, if you see Hebrews, then James, then 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look down at verse 21. Okay? It says here, there is also an antitype. Now, I want to stop there real quick and just tell you that that word antitype there means a pattern. Okay? So I'm going to read it like that. There is also a pattern which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, baptism is just symbolic. It's just a pattern of what has taken place on the inside. Salvation doesn't come through baptism. Baptism is an expression of the fact that you have now been saved, okay? Our conscience is cleansed when we place our faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, okay? It's Jesus' blood that cleanses our conscience, okay? Baptism is symbolic of the fact that we've come to that place of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're saying we're dead to the old man and we're rising again now to the new man that's in Christ Jesus. You see, we understand that we are sinners and and we're in need of a Savior. So we acknowledge that fact. And we acknowledge the fact that we can never stand before a holy God based on our own good deeds, based on our own religious service. It's only by the blood of Jesus. And you see, when this takes place within us, we are now in Christ. When we come to that place where we've repented and we realize it's nothing but the blood of Jesus that can save me. It's not by my works. It's simply by my faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We come to that place and We begin a new life, and we go off, and we are baptized symbolically to show the rest of the world that this is how we're now walking. Baptism symbolizes this fact of what has taken place within us. And you know, John the Baptist, he was calling people to repent and to get ready for the Savior that was coming into the world. We're not in that same position today. For you and me, we're already in the world, obviously, and Jesus has already come. So salvation is now offered to all through Jesus Christ. But let's turn back to John chapter 1. And um, let's continue reading on. In verse 29, and go ahead when you get back to John chapter 1, be sure that you mark this page. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. As I read that, I say, wow, what a statement for Jesus to be greeted with here. It's the beginning of His earthly ministry, and He's already reminded of His destiny. He will take away the sin of the world, which means He's going to go to the cross. You see, the shadow of the cross was cast over the entire earthly ministry of Jesus. How would you like it if you were to start a new job for, say, a taser manufacturing company? And your first day on your job, you walk in and they say, Behold, our new test dummy. Not a fun way to start things out, is it? When you just want to say, hey, I'm out of here. But not Jesus. He came to die for the sin of the world. And in so doing, Luke chapter uh, 19 verse 10 says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. In Isaiah chapter 50 it says, It's a prophesied of Jesus. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus was determined, you see, to accomplish the purpose for which he came. His purpose was the redemption of mankind. Let's uh, let's go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that this is the last week of the Lord's earthly ministry. And we're going to look down at verse 51. Luke 9, 51. It says, Now it came to pass, When the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent uh, messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So the people of this Samaritan village would not receive Jesus into their village, but it didn't matter to him because he was determined to press on to Jerusalem. But his disciples had a a different viewpoint of this rejection. Verse 54, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? but he returned or but he turned and rebuked them and said you do not know what manner of spirit you are of for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them you see that's the reason jesus came to save not to destroy so john the baptist had a clear-cut purpose his purpose was to prepare the way for the coming of the lord but jesus had a much greater purpose And that purpose was to bring salvation to all the world that would believe in and receive him. And turning back now to John chapter 1, John goes on to say in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. So John's admitting here that he didn't know Jesus either but John had knowledge from God that Jesus was going to be revealed so by faith John went out proclaiming the uh proclaiming Jesus and baptizing people. And you know what you and I have knowledge of Jesus today. We have a knowledge that John the Baptist didn't have in his day. We know the finished work of Christ on the cross. Well, John knew that. He knew why Jesus came. He knew Jesus came to take away the sins of the world, but he wasn't around when Jesus actually did it. But we have the knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we also have the knowledge that he's coming again. And John the Baptist, by faith, declared the coming of the Lord the first time, and we are called to be like John, and by faith declare the second coming of the Lord. In the days of Noah, God proclaimed that judgment would rain down, and only eight people um, took heed and got on board the boat. In the days of John the Baptist, we don't know how many, but some people took heed to John and repented. Today we know that Jesus is coming again, but how many people are taking heed and surrendering their lives to Christ? So John continues to speak in regards to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verse 32, it says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Now, keep your finger here, and let's turn to Mark chapter 1, the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, then John. So it's, To the left of where we are now in John. Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 9 through 11. I'm going to go back though and read verse 32 of John chapter 1. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Verse 9 of Mark chapter 1. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, John baptizes Jesus, and he sees the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. Now, back in John chapter 1, verse 33, I did not know him, But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, John baptizes with water for the outward expression of repentance, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, it is clear that there are two baptisms here. And the book of Acts has more to say about this topic that we won't cover today, but you can uh, read Acts for yourself, and for example, go. uh, I suggest you go and read Acts chapter 19. But the baptism of John was a baptism to repentance for the preparation of the coming of Messiah. And the baptism that is from Christ is the baptism to the death of our old nature and the resurrection of our new life in Christ. And that is the type of baptism that we as believers in Christ practice today. Okay? It's a baptism to the death of our old nature and the resurrection of our new life in Christ. When we perform water baptism, it's not an outward cleansing. It's symbolic of a cleansing that takes place on the inside and it is the Holy Spirit that does the work that cleanses our conscience of sin. When we get into the waters of baptism, we are not trying to get clean for the coming of the Messiah, for He has already come. It's not a religious act because we cannot make ourselves good enough to get to heaven. When we are baptized today, it is because we've come to that place within our hearts of absolute surrender. And we're saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. I believe that He died for my sin and that He was buried and rose again to everlasting life. And apart from Him, I can do nothing. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And our heart comes to that point where we recognize that deep within. But we see that John baptized with water and Jesus still baptizes today with the Holy Spirit. John declared this fact in verse 33 and then he goes on to say in verse 34 and i have seen and testified that this is the son of god you see john had an awesome calling not only was he chosen by god to be the one that would prepare the way for the lord jesus but he also knew that jesus is the son of god john here gives his solemn testimony that jesus is the son of god jesus is the one and only one who perfectly declares the nature and the personality of God the Father. And the Gospel of John emphasizes John's role as a witness to this fact. And a witness is a person that gives testimony as to what they have seen and experienced in an effort to establish the truth. A witness is not to be neutral. They are to be committed to the truth of their testimony, and they... Uh, that, That is what makes them a reliable witness. If they are not committed to the truth of their testimony, they are an unreliable witness. We see the truth declared in Scripture as to who Jesus is, and we must decide what to do with that knowledge. But once we've made a decision to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we proclaim this through baptism, and then we become witnesses for Christ. The Holy Spirit comes within us and we are empowered as Acts one eight says. Jesus speaking in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. Our lives become living testimonies of his grace that has been poured out upon us. And I encourage you to continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. But I also encourage you to share what the Lord has already revealed to you about himself by his Holy Spirit at work within you. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You see, you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you if you've come to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and you can be a witness to Jesus to others around you. So, once again, I encourage you to study your word for yourself. Go back through the scriptures that we've read today. Be like a Berean. Study it for yourself. Know these things within your heart. You can't just take everything that I'm saying here. It just doesn't work that way. It's not that 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 what I'm saying, that I purposely get on here and try and tell you wrong things. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that you need a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to know the Word of God. You need to have the Word of God testify within your own heart. It reminds me of, and we'll get there, on a a future teaching, but um, the woman at the well. Jesus came to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He spoke into her life. She ran back into the city. She told the men about um, to come and see the Christ. Could this be the Christ? She said the men ran, and they listened to Jesus for themselves, and they found out, and they came back, and they told the woman, Hey, we believe, not because you told us, but because we know for ourselves And you know, that's what I'm telling you here when I teach you through the Word of God like this. Read the Bible yourself. Find out for yourself. Oftentimes today, people make the mistake of elevating a a person to a position where all they do is listen to what that man or that woman has to say, and that becomes it. They don't go to the Scriptures themselves, like the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, I believe it was. So, we've been through a lot of scriptures today, but I really encourage you to uh, have a personal time of devotion of your own where you study the Word of God for yourself. We appreciate you listening, and uh, God bless, and we'll see you next time.